This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, this is Andy Hill from the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast. And when I'm not singing Disney karaoke songs with my kids at home, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you're wondering if you can be the next millionaire next door, do we have a guest for you? Because we're talking to the head of data points about who really is a millionaire, Dr. Sarah Stanley Fala. Plus, in our headline segment, how do you feel about your investment strategy? A new study out shows that many investors are unrealistic about their portfolios. Plus, a new credit card can help you save for your 401k plan. How great is that? Or is it actually great at all? We'll share the story. And that's not all. We'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to John, who asks about the difference between an employee stock purchase plan and a Roth 401k. We'll answer a question from the mailbag and yet somehow still leave time for my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who are the two main lumps that make up Hump Day, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I'm the biggest lump. <laughs> I have no idea what to do with any of that. So, <laughs> sure. King on the lump. I don't know. Yep. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe Salci. I average Joe money on Twitter. And across the card table from me on hump day, it's Mr. OG. Oh, that's the most enthusiastic I've heard you in six years. Well, you know, we're about to record a great podcast. And you know what? The Millionaire Next Door. Wasn't that one of your favorite books? Yes, still is. And as you know, Dr. Stanley sadly passed away in a car accident, but his daughter, who did much of the research and is his co-author on this book, she's upstairs talking to mom. Oh, very cool. She's upstairs. Absolutely. 
just a great show today. You know what else is great though, OG? Two week old pumpkin pie. <laughs> Maybe not. But heading to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnified money, you don't have to eat two year old pumpkin pie or two two year old. I definitely wouldn't eat two year old pumpkin pie. It comes with all these crazy green spots. It's awesome. Yeah, it's delicious. Built in penicillin. Has <laughs> its own coating. I'll never get sick again after that because I have antibodies built up against everything. No, stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money because when you go there, the average person saves. 450 bucks on those financial products you use every stinking day. And if you could use 450 bucks, when do you want it? Right now. I feel like that joke, you know, what do we want? Low flying airplane noises. When do we want them? Now. Not good. Come on. Give me something. Wow. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money for more. By the way, I'm totally using that tonight at dinner. Oh, you totally are. Yeah, pretend like you're not laughing. You're 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 laughing on the inside, not on the outside. Yep. We got a great show. Dr. Sarah Stanley Fella is here with us. But first we've got some great headlines, so let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline is a new study out from Netixis Investment Managers. Uh, they looked at investor sentiment 10 years after the global financial crisis. You'd think, OG, that 10 years after the global financial crisis, we've probably learned a lot, don't you think? I'm sure we have. Nope. 10 years after the global financial crisis, investors are wary of a world that's changed dramatically and they're struggling to make sense of what it means for their investments. Their 2018 global survey of individual investors finds that despite the longest running bull market and interest rates at historic lows, investors are wrestling with three critical conflicts. And by wrestling, I mean, well, let me tell you what I mean. Number one, trust and security. Even though the majority of investors feel more secure about their finances now, they still don't think the world itself is a more secure place than it was in 2008. So 71% of people feel more financially secure than they did during the financial crisis. But 70% don't think the world itself is a more secure place. So wouldn't you think that you'd be a little diligent about your portfolio and about your prospects for the future if you think that the world is worse off? Turns out, though, it's probably better to not pay any attention to your portfolio, regardless of what you think is going to happen in the future. But 71% feeling more financially secure, while 70% don't think the world is secure. Should you feel secure? So you feel secure, but you're insecure? I'm confused. Me too. I mean, seriously, you feel, I don't know, maybe you feel more secure because you're 10 years older, you've been saving. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Second, only two thirds of investors say they understand the difference between active and passive investing. Okay. That I know. Nobody knows the difference. Our audience kind of sort of does. Yes. But do you think that that's, is that super important to know? No. Yeah. I think it's thing number 18 on a list of 100, maybe. But many have critical misconceptions. Listen to this. 63% say that index funds are less risky than actively managed Oh, that's very, very common theme. Yep. Yep. Hello. Hello, Vanguard. I would like an explanation as to why my account's down 4% this month. I'm invested solely in index funds, and this shouldn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Index funds have diversified enough that I shouldn't do what the index does. Yeah, dang it. 
67% believe passive investments will help them minimize losses. Passive investments can't. They're passive. They're not allowed That's, to. You, By definition, you will be average. Now, that doesn't mean, let's, let's add a little clarity here, though, OG, that doesn't mean the active investments are necessarily going to help you either. Well, statistically, you're right. There's a very low chance of doing better than a particular index, so maybe you're okay with being average, but the definition of a passive index fund is that you will get the median return of everything. At the same time, I think people think that active investors will do better, active managers will do better, yet I think that the rules around prospectuses and what the fund is going to do and the way mutual fund managers are paid, mutual fund managers get paid to be close to the index in, in the old world of active investing. And because of that, I think it decreases their ability to move the needle that much. I mean, when a fund, let's say it's a large cap value fund, it has to buy large cap value stuff. And if large cap value is not the place to go to make the portfolio uh, more safe, less aggressive, portfolio managers really can't do it because they're they're tied to what it says in that perspective. So I think people even overestimate an active fund manager's ability to do a lot. I think you have to go more with a hedge fund approach, which comes with its own scariness, if scariness is a word, or, uh, oh, it totally is. or, or probably the better, the better place to go, the place I prefer to go is solve your problem with asset allocation. That's really the only free lunch in any of this game is it doesn't matter whether or not you have an active fund or a passive fund. It doesn't matter if you use indexed or, you know, non-index funds. What does really matter is the fact that you have a diversified portfolio that has a good amount of big and small companies and a good amount of local and foreign companies and brand new countries and that sort of thing, because that's going to provide you with the necessary ups and downs so you can continuously buy and sell, but not do so in a manner of prediction, but rather through just normal volatility, but it also provides you the other end of the stick, which is you get all of the return all of the time. It just comes in a different order. It's frustrating to me to think that people know this little about it. That's why we have at least five listeners, so we can enlighten them, continue to preach the good news. That's right. Lastly, unrealistic views on risk and return. 53% of investors say the long-running bull market has made them feel secure about their investments. Well, sure. Not recently, but okay. 79% of financial professionals say it's made investors complacent about the level of risk they're taking. Uh-huh. Agreed. Yeah. Some big disconnects here. I think I'm totally diversified. I have an iShares S&P 500 fund, a Vanguard S&P 500 fund, and one from uh, <laughs> PowerShares the, or somebody else. And Power, yeah, Spider S&P 500 fund. <laughs> what could three, go wrong? Three different funds. Yeah, I'll link to this at our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. I think that um, that asset allocation here here for the wind and um, understanding how passive funds work a little bit and active funds work, I think uh, goes a long way to understanding the bumpiness of the plane ride that you're in for when the market gets uh, gets bumpy itself. Our second headline comes to us from Investment News. Oh, gee, you brought this one to me. This is awesome. This piece is written by uh, Greg Iacurci at Investment News. 
employees can now save in a 401k by using a credit card. What could go wrong with this? I wish I could invest at the blackjack table using a credit card. Spending and saving, or you, you can. It's called cash advance. It <laughs> no, always. I was thinking they should have like literally. You should just be able to put your credit card in the slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> and just put it all on black, and either you pay it off. That's not how slot machines work, but okay. And yeah. you get extra. Well, just put it in the roulette machine. You know, yeah. put all your credit on black, and, and yes, yes. This is an idea. Go on. Either way, you have no trouble. Like, 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 you will like, either be bankrupt or have twice as much money as available. What could go wrong? It's great. Yeah. Yep. And it always amazes me. And I don't gamble a ton, but when I have gambled, have somebody throw down their their credit card and asking the pit boss to do a cash advance on their credit card. I'm like, are you yeah. flipping kidding me? Really? Yeah. Spending and saving. Maybe say- just wanted to. Freaking flyer mile points or whatever. Yeah, hey, Greggy Akurchi <laughs> writes, spending and saving are kind of like oil and water. They don't mix well together. But one company is trying to link credit card spending to increased retirement savings and financial advisors are taking notice. Earlier this year, Evo shares began offering cash back to 401k and 403b plan participants tied to their credit card purchases at certain merchants. The offer is similar to other credit card perks, such as points that buyers can accumulate for discounts at retailers like Amazon. The cashback is returned to employees in the form of retirement savings. Chad Larson, president and chief executive of advisory firm MRP, said Evo Shares has the potential to make a positive impact. He's considering implementing it in MRP's retirement plan and potentially rolling it out to 401k clients if it works well. Quote, we don't often hear of new ideas, Mr. Larson said, of the retirement plan industry. So that aspect of this and the fact that somebody's put together the technology to do it and they're building it out, I like that innovation. Here's a basic concept. When 401k participants use a credit card to make purchases with participating retailers, the retailers offer cash back often in the range of 4 to 10% of the total purchase. Every quarter, EvoShare sends the employee a check for the total cash back or transfers the funds electronically. At the same time, a one-time payment for that amount is taken from the employee's paycheck and deposited in the 401k plan so the employee comes out even in terms of take-home pay. Huh? Yeah, I got it. So explain that it. to me. So the only way that you can contribute to a 401k is with earned income, right? Your employer can contribute, but there's a real strict formula on how they can do it. So the way that they've got around this is they say, just like, you know, we have like Ebates or Honey, if you remember, the browser apps where you go and say, hey, I'm going to shop at Nike. And it says, hey, click here and you get 10% back. On Ebates, for example, that's what they're doing here. So they say, hey, you used your credit card and you earned $282 of reward dollars, reward points, whatever. And so we're sending you that check for $282. P.S. We also notified your employer. So your employer will take an extra $282 out of your paycheck next week. Because that contribution has to come from you. It can't be from this. You know, so basically they're saying... Basically, you could do this on your own using Ebates or whatever Fidelity 2% credit card if you wanted to think about it, but they're doing it for you. They're linking the two to say, we just sent you a check for 200 bucks. We're taking that 200 bucks out of your bank account or out of your uh, payroll. You're even money. You don't know the difference, but. 
I guess if you're linking saving and spending anyway, I mean, you do this with airline points, right? They give you airline points. You do it with, with the you promise plan. You do it with uh, college savings. Why not 401k savings? I can see a lot of good things for this, but probably way more bad things than the good things. Just the habit of having to, I mean, I've done it, which means other people probably have done it as well. Hey, I got that credit card that's got the extra bonus points. I should probably make sure that I get my bonus points this quarter. So I've been putting off buying this thing anyway, but I'll just buy it now. Yeah. Which is fine as long as you can pay it off. But then the minute you pay $1 of interest, you know, you totally blew the whole thing up. So I can totally see this being like, well, I'm saving for my 401k by charging a vacation to Jamaica that I can't pay for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it gets you know. it gets rid of like half the half the guilt. Sweetheart, this is totally for our retirement. No, 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 no. Get this. Get what we're really doing here. Right. Yeah. yeah. I know I shouldn't buy a car on my credit card, but check this out. <laughs> it's actually 401k savings. Yeah, I think if you're getting a credit card because it's gonna help you with your 401k. To save you for your retirement plan, <laughs> you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> Very well might. I think that's lesson number one. Lesson number two here is active and passive investing. Asset allocation is the dream come true. Upstairs Talking to Mom is a psychologist and president of DataPoint. Of course, she's a co-author with her father, of the book, The Next Millionaire Next Door. Data Points is a data research and technology company studying wealth accumulation and building tools to help individuals and financial advisors shape behaviors that drive wealth building. Of course, we learned from the first book in this series, The Millionaire Next Door, that the way you build wealth and the way that you show wealth, usually two totally different things. Can't wait to talk about this topic. How do we become the next Millionaire Next Door. Let's say hello to Dr. Sarah Fala. Hey, I'm walking down the stairs to the basement. Dr. Sarah Fala, how are you? I am good. How are you doing? Well, I'm fantastic. I can't believe, has it really been, what, 22, 23 years since The Millionaire Next Door? Yes, absolutely. I was I was in college when that book came out, so it didn't phase me at all that my father had written that. It was no big deal at the time. I had other things to do. <laughs> I was going to say, when people would fawn over your dad, would you just roll your eyes and go, oh, dad, come on. Oh, gosh, yes. I was even at work when, when folks, when I first was working out of graduate school, people found out he wrote the book. I would sort of not deny it, but I definitely would put it aside. You know, oh, no, I have to be my own person. I don't want to, you know, don't want to talk about what my dad was doing. It's pretty funny how that how that changes over time. Well, not only have you updated all of the results to be for now for 20 to 23 years later, but also you, you did one thing in the book I want to talk about first, which is everybody has a favorite chapter from the millionaire next door. And you even looked at what people's favorite chapters are. And it wasn't Sarah, what people thought they were. Right. Everybody thinks it's the frugal chapter, right? So I want to hear about being frugal and saving money and, you know, living below my means the ones that were important were ones about family and how you share your wealth with others. So that economic outpatient care piece and 
you know, how you, you treat your adult children, for example. I thought that was just phenomenal. Phenomenally telling about what givers a lot of these people are. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think, you know, that that's a consistent theme over time in terms of funding some of the things that your children do. I think the trick is, of course, to make sure that that economic outpatient care doesn't lead to that dependency that we see. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. It, it wasn't a question that was on my list. But yeah. but as you're talking, I'm thinking about a lot of millionaires that you profile. These people pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. They used mm-hmm. systems. It wasn't uh, from a wealthy family. They created it themselves. Do you think it's actually harder for the kids of millionaires to stay millionaires than it is for somebody to actually become one? I think that there's a couple things that seem to be themes that children of either millionaires or individuals that that really weren't wealthy, that didn't have wealthy parents, seem to have in terms of their life experiences. So those include things like, you know, having to work hard from an early age. So whether your parents were wealthy or they weren't, you know, understanding that discipline of hard work, of having a career or a job or some way of providing for yourself in terms of income, I think those are pretty consistent themes. Those that are consistently given a lot and and that don't have to sort of make do on their own tend to have some of those personality characteristics related to, hey, everything else is just going to happen for me and I don't really have to do a whole lot. So we, we see that And of course, as a mom myself, I I know that that's really challenging because you want to provide for your kids, you want to make things easy for them. But at the same time, in the long run, they probably would be better off doing a lot of things on their own. It's kind of like, as you're talking, I'm thinking teaching your kids an action bias, like take control Mm. bias is, is where the, I guess the magic is. I think about this in terms of, you know, helping them understand that they can be proactive, whether it's at school, asking for additional help or taking control of their own academic success or with their friendships or anything like that. So I know we're kind of diving off into other areas, but helping them understand that they can impact their success, whether we're talking about academic success or financial success. Because what we know is that there are behaviors that ultimately lead to financial success. And those are things that we can control. Well, let's talk about some of those behaviors. Here, 23 years later, what's changed about becoming a millionaire? You know, what's changed are a lot of the environmental factors. So the economy is a little bit different, obviously, than 1996. Who's in charge is different than it was in the 90s. There are a lot of things related to costs, so large-scale costs like education and healthcare. Those things are different. I think what millionaires in general, though, and and those that are really focused on being financially successful, the things that are similar over time that allow them to be successful regardless of what's going on are things like being disciplined, having hard work, persevering regardless of what's going on around them. Those things haven't changed, even though, again, everything around us is sort of different. I mean, you and I are talking today. We wouldn't have done this in 1996. We would have been, I'm not sure what we would have been doing, but again, I was in college at that time, so I wouldn't have been talking about this. But understanding that times will change, but the behaviors and the way we approach finance, there's a pattern that allows somebody to be successful. We just have to follow it. It's just really hard to follow. Let me ask you about some of those specifics. How much of financial success is the group of people that you're around, who you surround yourself with, Mm -hmm. or is that a detriment? It can kind of go both ways, right? So if we surround ourselves with, with positive influences and individuals that tend to be, to look on the bright side of things that can influence us 
And then if we think about in terms of consumption, in terms of the financial decisions we make, it can negatively influence us. If we're around individuals that are really trying to emulate what they think wealth is and they're trying to demonstrate their status to others, that can influence us, even though that might not be at all conducive to where we're going. You know, I may have a goal of, you know, certain personal goals or financial goals, but if I'm being influenced by what others are doing, it may take me off course. And I think, you know, going back to some of the differences, social media makes that really hard. You've got those influences in your pocket all day long. Just scroll through Instagram and see how great everybody's doing. Of course, that's really curated, but that's hard to ignore. Yeah, the fear of missing out then because the social media becomes bigger than ever. Yeah, I think from whether we're talking about the vacations we're taking, right? So we talk about experiences. There's some research out there that describes experiences as being more valuable than things. You know, I think that really depends on your income level. But yeah, whether it's where you just went for spring break or what you're driving, I think all of those things are constantly around us. You talk at one point about the fact that to be a millionaire, you have to have a little bit of social indifference. I think that's the term that you use. <laughs> I know. It sounds so mean, right? right. And, and, and quite frankly, I think taken to an extreme, it is. So you've got to be able to ignore what the Joneses are doing. And that that's obviously a consistent theme, whether we're talking about the 90s or today. Being able to ignore what others are driving and buying and wearing is a key factor in predicting wealth, whether you're old or young or whether or not you have a high income. And so that's a real challenge because we want to feel part of a community um, and we want to belong. And, and so that's a real challenge. There's a story to your point, Sarah, about what cars people drive that mm-hmm. your dad tells about being at some high-end gala and he's speaking with a guy who owns a stable of high-end cars. I think if you don't mind telling that story again, that, that makes the point really well. Yeah, absolutely. He was such a great storyteller and we include those in the book. And one of them, you know, describes how someone's talking to him. Obviously, they know about his previous work and studying the affluent and, you know, asked him what he thought about a Corvette. He really thought that that might be something he might be interested in. But then this guy shared with him, you know, I I can't really drive that in my neighborhood. It's not good enough. It doesn't show status well enough as, let's say, a Porsche or something like that. And so I think, you know, whether we're talking about individuals that are buying luxury cars or what we're buying for our kids for the holidays, we're often influenced by what we think other people are going to think of us by our possessions. And that's that's a real challenge to building wealth. I remember reading a book by a CEO of Ferrari who was talking Mm. about how they sell Ferraris and about they don't discount. If somebody comes in and asks for a discount, their very first sentence back is, well, if you want a discount, you can't afford it. Yeah. Seth Godin talks about the fact that marketing is another influence, right? So we've been talking about kind of how others influence us, but certainly marketing as well. And one of the stories I think he shares, and I can't remember if it's in one of his books or his podcast, but he talks about Mercedes or any of those, you know, luxury vehicles, they've been kind of helping us understand from a very young age that that shows success. And by the time it's time for us to buy a car, we consider, you know, that's why we're considering those things is because we've been sort of taught those lessons over time. Yeah. Let's talk about where you live. Uh, There are some Mm -hmm. stories in the book about people living in New York and then realizing that that's a pretty expensive city. But how much about being the millionaire next door is about where you're located, where you live? Because I also think that New York, to some degree, helps you earn more money. Right, right. The factor that's often talked about 
is how much you spend on your house. And, and, and that's fine. That's certainly important. It's also how others around you within your neighborhood or community, how they're shopping and spending and paying for education based on the fact that they're in that particular community. So where you plant yourself, if you will, can lead to all these other financial decisions. And it's hard. I, I remember when we were buying our second house, we moved out of sort of the city area up into the suburbs of Atlanta and not really thinking that through and sort of realizing it within a couple of years, like, okay, this is a bigger decision because it's not only just the price of your home, but it's everything else that goes along with that. Does a millionaire next door have a financial advisor or do they do it themselves? Yeah, you know, they do often have advisors and they work with professionals. I would say, and we've seen this even in our other research we've done, is that they are really challenging clients in a lot of ways because they demand a lot from advisors. But most of them are very confident, and that's part of the challenge, right? They're very confident in their own abilities to manage their finances or their investments, and they don't necessarily view their their success as related to to the advice that they're getting. It's funny. One of my favorite books by your dad was actually uh, Networking with the Affluent. And, mm-hmm. and, but, but I learned so much about what millionaires are not. Like most people, mm-hmm. most advisors look at them as a meal ticket and they know they're looked at as a meal ticket. So, so because of that, you have to realize these people got where they are because they're very money savvy. Um, however, they mostly do business through referrals. So if you do a great job and work in a frugal manner with a millionaire, you'll have a stable of millionaires as clients. Yep. And I think even today, what's become really important, if you look back at those books, you know, he wrote those really for professionals that were wanting to work with the affluent. And today, one of the pieces that I think has become so important for individuals that are looking for millionaire next door type clients is being transparent. That's becoming a huge factor in success, uh, particularly for individuals that have built wealth on their own. You know, they've done the research, they've worked hard, they're looking for advisors and financial professionals, no matter really what service they're providing, to be extremely transparent about how they're paid and, and the kinds of clients that they're already working with and things like that. So that's one of one of those kind of differences that we're seeing over time. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's pretty funny because, you know, working online, I a lot of people talk about, well, don't have advisors. And when I was, when I was a financial advisor back in the day, I found that millionaires had the best advisors for that very reason you talk about, because they did, they did more homework. They didn't associate with some of the bad people in the profession, that kind of thing. Do millionaires though have more intelligent investment strategies than non-millionaires, Sarah? Yeah. You know, I, that's another one that continues to be surprising to me. So, you know, you would think that they'd have, you know, all these art collections and hedge funds and things like that. But in reality, they don't have these complex, high price, if you will, investment strategies. You know, we have a table on how millionaires invest in the book. And really, it's kind of the boring, you know, not so glamorous investment strategies that are what millionaires use today. If you had to sum up the biggest reason why the millionaire next door became the millionaire next door, what would you say the key to success is? You know, the key to success is doing things differently and not being afraid to do them differently. I think that that continues to be a theme. My, my dad often said that they were contrarians. They did things differently than others. So whether we're talking about investing or we're talking about the kinds of decisions we're making for our children or the consumer decisions we're making, 
you know, they're not following the crowd. And I think that's not easy for all of us to do. Um, it can definitely be challenging, but that's really the key. You talk a lot about work and the work that mm-hmm. the millionaire next door does. And I also remember, well, number one in this book, nothing's changed about physicians as an example from, right. from 20 years ago, still expected to live a, live this high flying lifestyle, which is yep. why fewer of them actually are millionaires. But the, but this whole idea around work and then the fire movement of, mm-hmm. you know, stopping yep. work early, I don't just want your opinion on this. How do you think your dad would also feel about the fire? movement. Yeah, you know, I think I don't think he realized that some of the work he did led to a lot of that and not that he necessarily caused it, but that, you know, that they sure. often cite them as, you know, a reason. Hey, I read The Millionaire Next Door and I said, "Hey, I can do this on my own." So he definitely wasn't aware of that. I think that he understood that wealth is just sort of in a way a, a report card, but it's not dictating your life. And so I think he would be very pleased to see that there is this movement out there of individuals that have decided, I can do this differently. Yeah. Um, this traditional work and career that my parents had and everybody else around me has isn't for me. And I want to do things differently. And I, I think he would applaud it. Now, does that differ at all from your feeling about the fire movement? No, you know, I, I think it's amazing. I think it just shows that people can do this when they put their mind to it. And so I, I from that perspective, I think it's fantastic. I think that some of the criticism around the fire movement has to do with the idea that they're just going to kind of check out of life and not be a productive member of society at some point. I don't see that from what the folks that I know that are in that movement. They have different, I, I would say, even alternative ways of contributing back. They're sharing their stories with others so that they can do this too. So I think that that criticism is unfounded. I notice also what resonates through your work here in The Next Millionaire Next Door is this idea of multiple streams of income, more important than ever mm-hmm. before. Right. Again, that's another sort of benefit of where we are today is that, you know, you can sit down in your basement or at your kitchen table and start a business within minutes. That becomes important, particularly if you're pursuing something like being financially independent at a really early age, or if you're just deciding, hey, I'm going to learn what I can from the career that I have today, but I'm planning for something else. And so having the discipline to set up that something else during your off hours, you know, not giving in to social media and sort of (laughs) scrolling through Instagram for hours on end at night, that is one of the benefits of technology, but then also a way to set yourself up for something different and probably even more conducive to your own skills and abilities and interests in the future. The book is called The Next Millionaire Next Door. Uh, You can get it everywhere, I assume, Sarah? Yes, everywhere books are sold, we think. You know, <laughs> I haven't looked everywhere, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I always ask that. You're the first person to go, well, I don't know. I haven't been everywhere. I know. I haven't been everywhere. I don't know. That's, I don't a, great, that's a great <laughs> answer. And a complete update, updated for current times about becoming the millionaire next door. And obviously, we got to about one one hundredth of, of what you'll find oh, gosh, yep. in, in the book today. Yeah. This is packed full of good stuff. Sarah, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes today. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey there, trivia aficionados. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. You know, five days into December, and I am officially calling for heated blankets and hot chocolate with those extra large, extra fluffy marshmallows here in the basement. I mean, you know, hey, whoa, wait a minute. Guys, come on. 
I've got ice on my microphone. Can we call some people, do something about this? Jeez. Speaking of ice, there's ice on the cornfields right now. Harvesting is long gone, but the guys keep talking about tax loss harvesting. Here's your trivia question. What the heck is tax loss harvesting? I'll be back with your answer right after this cup of hot chocolate. Stacky Benjamins is supported by MagnifyMoney.com. You know, OG, not only do they have all of the best stuff when it comes to credit cards. By the way, you know a credit card you're not going to find there? One that helps you save for your 401k. Not yet. (laughs) That thing's going to be huge. Huge. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash MagnifyMoney is the place to go. Whether you are looking for the best credit card rewards out there or you're trying to get rid of interest that you're paying to the man. And I'm going to go there right now. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. See how easy that is. Bam. Here it is. And not only can I look at balance transfers, cashback rewards, I can also look at 0% interest credit cards, low interest credit cards, secure credit cards for people just starting off. I think the key here, OG, is know yourself about which one of those is appropriate for you. Well, just whether or not a credit card itself is appropriate for you. You know, if you can't uh, handle the fire, stay out of the kitchen, what what are we trying to say? (laughs) Yes, you might be better off. You got to figure out if the juice is worth the squeeze. How's that? (laughs) Might be better off with a personal loan, a debt consolidation loan. Not only that, they have budgeting apps, credit monitoring and identity theft products, uh, savings accounts, checking accounts, link savings and checking, CD rates, over 92% of all the stuff that's available online. You find it Magnify Money. Why just knock on the door of your brick-and-mortar bank when Magnify Money has it all? StackyBenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money for more. Welcome back, marshmallow lovers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, here with your post-harvest time trivia question. Here was today's doozy. What is tax loss harvesting? If you thought it was going out and digging up your old tax returns, leave those things buried so the IRS don't find them. Know what I mean? No, tax loss harvesting means selling off investments that have a big loss so that you can claim them on this year's taxes. Good news and bad news on this front, though. While you can sell as many losses as you want, the IRS limits the losses you can claim in any year on your tax return. But don't worry. If you have more than allowed, you can carry them over and use them in future years. Need more on that topic? Yeah, I do. We'll have a link or two in the show notes that'll show you how it all works. See ya! Thanks to Sarah Falaw for joining us. Again, OG, people that have money... And people that look like they have money, a lot of the time, two totally different things. A lot of the time, two different types of people. That's right. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're putting what you value first. Things I value the most presently are rebalancing in my international value funds (laughs) and my 401k credit card. (laughs) Perfect. Or your family and your time. Of course, you have those two things. You got more stuff for your family and your time. There it Mm -hmm. is. That's why they've created a modern way to buy quality term life insurance with affordable prices. All policies issued by the parent company, Mass Mutual. 
and easy to complete online application and instant coverage decisions. No waiting several weeks for a decision and lovely customer support. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get your free quote. And I think especially during this holiday season, it's a great time to make sure you've got the right life insurance for you and yours. Let's say hi to John, who called the Haven Lifeline. John, say hi. Hi, Joe and OG. My name's John, and I just started a job that uses an employee savings and stock ownership plan, which I can choose to do on a pre-tax or after-tax basis. I was thinking about going with the after-tax plan, but nowhere in the description is the word Roth. So can you tell me what the difference between a Roth 401k and an after-tax basis employee savings and stock ownership plan is? So far, the only advice I've gotten is it's better than a sharp stick in the eye. So the bar is low. Can you guys take a shot? Thanks. We certainly will take a a shot, John. Pre-tax or after-tax employee stock ownership plan. What you thinking? I don't think that they make Roth ESOPs. I've never seen one. That doesn't mean they don't exist, I guess. But basically what an employee stock ownership plan is, and it sounds a lot like an employee stock purchase plan, which is quite often offered at large companies like Starbucks or McDonald's or something like that. And uh, ESPP, employee stock purchase plan, that's the plan where you contribute a little bit of your paycheck every pay period and you get to buy stock in the company at a small discount uh, every so often. An employee stock ownership plan is completely different and is generally designed for large, small businesses that need some way of getting liquidity without the owners just saying, I got to sell this thing. And I'm not talking about a small business like Stacking Benjamin Small. I mean, small business like it's a $20 million company and two brothers own it and they've owned it for a long time. And now they're thinking, okay, I need to get some cash out of this thing, but I don't want to sell the company outright or I don't want to close it altogether. Is there a difference, by the way, between a $20 million company and a $20 company like ours? Uh, Yeah, a a handful of zeros. That's really the biggest difference. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, didn't want to derail you. Just want some clarification there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the biggest the biggest way to tell the difference is write a $20 check out of the corporate account right now and then write a $20 million check out of the corporate account and see what happens to both of those. Oh, I'm sure that would go that would go well. You get to see if Especially, you're just make make it payable to cash. If you're just just see and and walk it into your bank with a big straight laced yeah. yep. uh smile on your face. I'd like to deposit my uh, check, please. It's a bonus. Yes. No problem and I'm gonna here. I'm going to need those in singles. Yes. And then you get to talk to a nice officer later. Yeah. My friends call me cash. Anywho's employee stock ownership plan generally designed by uh, larger small businesses for liquidity purposes. Effectively, this is how it works. You contribute some money, but a lot of times it's mostly bonus money that's contributed on your behalf to ostensibly a pool that provides liquidity for other people today who are retiring, and then provides you with shares in the company that you can convert into cash upon your retirement. It really has a vesting schedule, much like a pension would. You can kind of think of it like a pension plan, except at the end of the employment time, you don't convert it into a stream of income. You convert it into a lump sum. Now, some of these plans have different rules, and they'll say, eh, yeah, you can get it out to, in you know one-year increments for five years, or it's a 10-year payout or something like that. And it generally is kind of free-ish money, uh, so you should be happy. But 
the downside is is that it's completely up to the liquidity of the organization. And so if you're if you look at the structure of your company and you go, well, there's a whole bunch of people who are 60 years old and then a whole bunch of us that are 30. Well, what do you think is going to happen if they don't turn over that that next group of people? Well, by the time you get to 60 and you go, I'm I'd like to take my money out, you run the risk of there not being enough liquidity at that point. So from a planning standpoint, you can count on it. But I wouldn't count on it as like the sole thing in your retirement yeah. plan because a lot of times these ESOP plans look really, really, really cool because it really is just a way for the owners to to gain some liquidity kind of immediately and some tax benefits and that sort of thing too. Really oversimplifying it. And I know there's a CPA out there that's going to go, well, hold on, hold on. Uh, you forgot the uh, tax code uh, provisions. I got it. But um, it's a cool thing. You should take advantage of it if it allows you to contribute money to it you can, but I would only do that after you've maxed out your 401k plan and after you've maxed out your other retirement plan options like Roths and that sort of thing. Yeah. But what about, uh, that's what was my next question though. He asked about pre-tax or after-tax, which way do you think you should go there? I'm not sure that there's going to be an option to be honest with you. Again, most ESOP plans that I've seen actually don't even allow employees to make contributions. I've seen a few that do. Most of them are just, that's where your bonus money goes. And so it's going to be by default pre-tax. So I'm not sure that there's even going to be an option to do an after-tax because uh, that would require kind of separate accounting on the company's part. And for them to get the deduction, somebody's got to pay the taxes eventually and they don't want to pay them now. So thanks for the question, John. If you've got a question for us, Call the Haven Lifeline because John's taken home a greatest money show on earth t-shirt for calling the Haven Lifeline. Thanks for that. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail to do it that way. Or you can send us a letter. Today's letter comes to us from William. William says, hey guys, love the show. Got a question about getting into the financial planning industry. I currently work in IT, but I'm more passionate about finances and investing. I'm a bit of a shy, awkward guy, hence the IT work, but was wondering if you had any recommendations for getting my foot in the door. Are there jobs that are less client-facing and more about the numbers that are accounting? Should I focus on specific certifications first, like the CFP, CFA, et cetera? Thanks for all your work. Best financial podcast out there. Thanks, William. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily want to focus on clients, but wants to help people by maybe being the numbers person. Well, there's a lot of options there. Most advisory firms are always looking for good technical support, people that want to be behind the scenes and work what we call backstage, but, but really work to put together the best output for clients. There's a lot of scenarios here. I think if you go with the big companies, if you're thinking like big investment firms, uh, big planning firms nationally, you're going to be thrust into a sales role almost immediately. And so if that's not your cup of tea, you probably want to look a little bit more local. Um, I can think of, for example, the website newplannerrecruiting.com, which is run by a young man named Caleb. He's probably not a young man, but uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll call him a young man. Uh, wonderful firm. And they help partner advisors, who are looking for support with people who want to provide support both on the sales side and on the behind the scenes side. So that might be a good place to start. As far as like just kind of cold calling people, another great place to look might be XY Planning Network. Again, you're going to find some more virtual type help that way. Maybe the side hustle, so to speak, is creating your own back office financial planning firm for a collection of advisors where you maybe do financial planning work at a flat rate for 
five or six people. You know, you're not just tied into one company. That might be an idea too. Yeah. I knew some uh, financial planning people who got very comfortable with the financial planning software and Mm -hmm. made a deal with financial advisors said, listen, you offer the planning service and I'll create all of the actual plan. You fill out all of these things and tell me exactly how you want it. And I will do the legwork. And uh, I actually hired somebody to do that stuff for, for me for a while before I brought somebody in house. I had a guy named Todd who was my right hand man who did all of that with with me. So he and I would meet a couple times a week to go over exactly what we need. Of course, we'd have other times where we were just working side by side on things. We also had a guy in our office named Tom who specifically served several different advisors and he made all the trades. And if ever anybody needed money out of their accounts, of course, we were a firm that handled a lot of money in-house. So if somebody needed money out of their account, they'd call Tom and Tom would take care of all that. They could usually do it online too if they wanted to, but most people preferred to call Tom. And uh, Tom all day just was placing trades. That was the most- most Yanking and banking. Most of Tom's- Churning and burning. Right there. Sell, sell, sell. No, we totally didn't do that. But uh, t- a ticker in your office, didn't you? You had like the little electronic ticker that went around the room. Lived and died by it. Yes. <laughs> or not. Soar plunge. Soar <laughs> plunge. Popping tums all day long. Yeah. 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 Probably not. Um, but I would start back to the original question here. I, I would start very local and look at advisory firms local to your area and find out what support they might need in the backstage and then, uh, then kind of go from there. Good stuff. Thanks for the question, William. If you've got a question for us, head to stackybenjamins.com. And at the top of the page, you'll see all the ways you can interface with us. Of course, the best way is the Haven Lifeline, which is stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. That's going to do it for today. Uh, Besides, if you'd like to get on the waiting list to, speaking of financial planners, uh, to work with OG's firm, on your financial planning needs, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG to begin the process of setting up a 2019 consultation. That's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned? So what did we learn today? First, take some advice from Dr. Sarah Stanley Falak. Want to be a millionaire? Maybe stop buying like you're a millionaire today when you aren't so you can actually be one tomorrow when you want to be. Second, thinking your passive index strategy can help you curtail market downturns? Invest in some books on basic investing. Once you know how investing really works, you'll know that passive investing and rebalancing can be key ways to win over the long term, but they aren't risk management strategies for today. But the big lesson? While tax loss harvesting has nothing to do with real harvesting of crops, it's a great way to clean out the basement. Can't I write off all the losses I've taken from this Beanie Baby collection? What about my Tamagotchis? Come on, OG. I swear to God, the Tamagotchis were an investment. Special thanks to Dr. Sarah Stanley Falaw for joining us on today's show. You'll find The Next Millionaire Next Door wherever books are sold, and you'll find Sarah's research and data at datapoints.com. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. 
There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Margie down at the Sizzler just told me I made something of a Freudian slip. When I asked her what that was, she said, it's when you say one thing, but you really mean your mother. Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. What happens in the after show stays in the after show. We don't talk about it at all. Uh, If you're here for financial planning stuff, we can say goodbye to you because we talk about everything from board games to funny stuff that happened to us recently. And uh, OG and I also watch a lot of movies and we give you our uh, (laughs) completely non-professional reviews of all the movies that we see. And, uh, oh, gee, you saw this one, which stars a little guy named Ralph on uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Three, two, one, go! Way to go, kid. One second, I'm having the time of my life. The next thing I know, my game is just... Oh no, I'm freaking out hard. If I'm not a racer, what am I? Oh, you're my best friend. All you gotta do is find a part to fix your game. Everything goes back to the way it was. But where are we gonna find that? The internet! What? Housewives want to meet you. They do. Want to get rich playing video games? Slaughter race. It's wicked dangerous. Oh, yep, I'm out of that cold. It was a one, but it was an old. Oh, nice kitty. Nice kitty. Attention to detail is pretty impressive. Well, well, well. Who are you? I think we should get out of here. And here comes uh, the bad person well 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 as ralph and this uh, girl try to apparently go into the internet to save her game or to fix her game or something it said it said it's, <laughs> i feel like you don't even know anything about wreck it ralph is that fair it is did it you is see fair. the first one i did i no, and i heard it was a great movie it's, it says it's by the same people who did zootopia i love zootopia i thought it was great so kind of the first part of wreck it ralph is all about them being the characters in arcade games. And after the games are over, then they all meet in the power strip. That's basically where 
you know, the, the central terminal is, so to speak. Well, in any event, the owner of the arcade decides to hook up Wi-Fi. And so he plugs in a Wi-Fi router and nobody knows what it is. Finally, somebody figures it out. Long story short, Vanellope's racing game gets broken. Where she's from is from Sugar Rush, if memory serves. And so they have to figure out how to fix her game. Otherwise, they're going to get rid of the game. And so she and Ralph go to the internet to try to solve the how do I fix the game. And it is like an old person searching on the internet for the first time. It is hilarious. There's so much Disney overlap in this movie. There's a scene where the Disney princesses are there. You might have seen parts of that in the, in the previews. Well, it is a Disney movie. Uh, yes, sir, it is, of course. Yep, <laughs> yep. But all of the princesses are there. All of them. All of them. And so there's a, there's a really funny scene there. There's a whole bunch of funny scenes at the, toward the middle and toward the end. And they layer in so many different uh, Disney-isms along the way. There's a part where Ralph, of course, is the big, dumb, lovable idiot, where they're traveling through the internet, and he, he looks up and he says, well, if I ever need to go get a pair of goggles, that's where I'll go. And of course, he looks up and it's Google, <laughs> but he just says goggles, you know. So lots of, uh, lots of funny things there. And just the way that they portray the stuff that happens on the internet, you heard the pop-ups that were happening. <laughs> Sassy you know. women want to meet you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they He's do? Like, they do. <laughs> exactly. So how Disney takes this information, like something that we deal with every day, and then turns it into, how would this look like on the inside if you were there, basically? And it's it's such, it's such a great experience. We saw it in uh, the Dolby Theater with my mom and her husband and the kids and my brother and we just had a great time such a fun such a fun movie perfect for everybody if you saw wreck it ralph the first one it will help if you have a little bit of the backstory because you'll understand like kind of where they're coming from yeah if you didn't not the end of the world but you'll get more out of it i think if you saw the first one fantastic rotten tomato score too well not fa- i mean very Absolutely. very good rotten tomato double score. thumbs up yep. yeah good stuff Thanks for that. Can't go wrong with any Disney movie. That's cool. I really still have to see the first one uh, because I like all of that stuff. And of course, the whole video game thing. I'd recommend it also because, so John C. Riley is Ralph. So he's the the other brother from Step Brothers. So it's Will Ferrell and John Riley. So John Riley is the, is, is, is Ralph there. Again, just super, super, super funny. Speaking of them. You'll get it because it's got a lot of, in the old, the first Ralph they reference so many arcade games like Space Invaders and they don't call them that, but you can see. And then you see like behind the scenes, like here comes a Pac-Man. He's like chasing four ghosts. Like in the background, it's just like just little things that make you smile that you go, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, type of thing. Speaking of John C. Riley, how come I, I haven't seen any of these previews until just the last week? I saw the preview for Watson and Holmes. Well, was it the theater this last I week? I will see that movie. I threw my wallet at the screen immediately. Mm-hmm. I'm like, take my money, please take it. Even the, the, if, if that movie's anywhere near as funny as the preview was the preview, I'm laughing my head off. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm, if I'm laughing that hard on the trailer, I haven't laughed that hard on a trailer in a long time. So I can't wait to, to see those, those guys 
uh, working together again. And, you know, I mean, now Creed 2 has been out for a couple of weeks. I didn't even know that movie was coming. We were, so our movie theater, I, I tweeted this out when we were there. I tweeted that Ralph broke the movie theater when we were there because it was just totally glitched out. And so finally they came in and the, the woman says, so, you know, there's a problem. We're fixing it. Hang out for a little while. So watching the previews and I'm thinking to myself, this is not a Disney series of previews. Oh no, you're in the wrong you know theater. What I mean? Like it's just, no, no, no. We were definitely in the right theater, but I'm thinking this is that, you know, usually Disney previews have a certain theme to them. Yeah. And the theme is not action movie. And so then the movie starts and it's this big Warner brothers logo. And I'm going, yeah, this is probably not the movie. So I'm just kind of sitting there. My brother looks at me, he goes, this is the new Harry Potter movie. <laughs> So, so, so somebody so had to go tell three him. Three minutes in the Harry Potter movie, and finally this it just stops. The guy sitting next to my kids leans over and goes, is this the Creed movie? <laughs> and we went, no, we're supposed to be watching Ralph. And he goes, oh, well, I'm definitely in the wrong theater then. Like, oh he's a, you know, he's a dude all by himself <laughs> that totally is there to watch Creed 2. And walked into a movie theater that was the Ralph one, but saw the Harry Potter movie. Potter and he was just totally discombobulated because I know he's kind of looking when he sat down. I kind of glanced at him. Yeah, he kind of he's kind of looking at me like, "Nice work, dude! You got your nine year old at Creed too. That's <laughs> respect, man." <laughs> oh, that's so good. That's so good. So. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month, and I want to celebrate people like my brother in law, Eric who is such a giving person, Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life, and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.